Scripture reading this evening will be taken from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in its tent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Good evening and welcome back. We're grateful for your presence tonight. We're thankful for the opportunity to be together. And we're going to be looking tonight at the book of Jonah. I appreciate Cameron leading us in our scripture reading tonight. And we appreciate you being here. If you're visiting, we want you to know that we do count you as an honored guest. We encourage you to come back to be with us at every opportunity that you have. We are glad that the young folks made it back safe and sound. I understand there were some problems with uh, the bus or the starting of the bus, but we do have a good mechanic on staff. And anyway, we were able to get the news that they got the bus started and got back home, so that's a good thing. But we're glad that, we're glad that you made it back home safe and sound. Tonight, as we look at the book of Jonah, I want to talk for a minute or two about how to change a great city. And as we look at the book of Jonah, we find that God called on a man by the name of Jonah, a prophet, to go to what he called the great city and preach against it. So, in light of that, we might well ask the question today, how do we change cities all across our nation? How do we change cities around the globe? There is an answer to that, and we're going to look at that in just a moment or two. Tonight, as we think about our study, how to change a great city, I want to begin by profiling the city of Nineveh, and then we want to look at the prescription for the city of Nineveh offered by God in heaven. As we begin, I want to call your attention to chapter 1 because chapter 1 is really the springboard behind our lesson as we look primarily at chapter 3. When we talk about the city of Nineveh, what we're interested in are the facts. We want to know what does the Bible say about the city of Nineveh? What do historians say about the city of Nineveh? Well, first of all, it is called the great city. At least four times in the book of Jonah, God describes Nineveh as that great city. Historians state that it was the greatest city of antiquity. For about two centuries, it was a world power. The city of Nineveh was, for many years, the capital of Assyria. Now we talk about the Assyrians and the Assyrian nation, and they were a mighty nation of people. Historians indicate, and scripture indicates, 
that the Assyrians ultimately gave way to the rise of the Babylonians. And we think about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies and that vast, that vast powerful nation that it became. But Nineveh is described as a great city. It was about 80 miles in circumference. And so we're not talking about a small parcel of land. Scholars and historians state that the walls of the city of Nineveh rose in height to 100 feet. 1,500 towers surrounded the city, rising in height to 200 feet. Historians also indicate that the breadth of the wall was such that four chariots could ride side by side around the city of Nineveh. It boasted a population of about 600,000 people. Over in chapter 4, Jonah records for us that there were about 120,000 young people residing in the city of Nineveh. Jonah said that they were unable to discern their right hand from their left. I would infer from that that they were yet to reach the age of accountability. But here is this great city, a city that is no doubt well known by so many people. But there is a second thing that we need to see. In chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord, of, of course, speaks to Jonah and instructs him to go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. Listen to what he says. For their wickedness has come up before me. So first of all, as we profile the city, we have to understand that it was indeed a great city. But secondly, it is described as a godless city. The Ninevite people were not Hebrew people. God had a special nation of people, the children of Israel. They were to have been a witness to surrounding nations. They were to have been a light for God in a pagan world. Much like Joseph was in the long ago when he went down into Egypt. You recall in Exodus chapter 1, the Bible says that there arose a new king in Egypt who knew not Joseph. What Moses was saying there in the long ago was the new king, the new Pharaoh in Egypt did not know the God of Joseph. So this is a godless city. Now, before we begin jumping to conclusions and look down at the Ninevite people, we need to understand that Nineveh, like many cities, past and present, had their problems, and yes, have their problems today. I suspect that Nineveh was not unlike many cities around the globe. The Ninevites were a cruel and ruthless people. Scholars suggest that they were extremely cruel 
to their enemies. They state that they flayed their victims. They skinned them. If I'm not mistaken, they also severed the heads of their victims and literally piled them up. We talk about ruthless, cruel, and inhumane people. That was the Ninevites. But look at our nation. Is it not the case that in cities around our nation that we sanction abortion, the termination of unborn babies? We don't have a problem with that from a national standpoint. Now, those of us who belong to the family of God, we do. The Bible still says that God hates the hands of those who shed innocent blood. We look at the ruthless, gruesome tactics of the Ninevites, and we condemn, condemn them for their atrocities. But listen, America has blood on her hands. There are cities all across our nation that have blood on their hands. Now when you look at the city of Nineveh and you begin examining other cities that are spoken of in the scriptures, you find that cities that are without God have problems, don't they? What about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Were they not known for their perverse lifestyle? The Bible tells us that they were destroyed for homosexuality. When you think of the city of San Francisco, what comes to mind? I visited San Francisco. It's a beautiful city. And there are some beautiful places to visit in that city. But when you think of San Francisco today, typically you think of it being a community of people who practice homosexuality. What about the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17? Athens was a city given over to pagan idolatry. We live in a nation today that is quickly becoming multicultural and pluralistic. We have people all across this city, to, all across this nation today that believe and practice any number of things in the name of religion. And by and large, people have accepted that. If you want to, if you want to worship and serve Buddha, that's your right. If you want to be an adherent to the teaching of Muhammad, that's your right. If you want to follow the Christian religion, well, that's acceptable too. The city of Athens was marked by their idolatry. Paul said that he found an inscription to the unknown God. He said, whom you therefore ignorantly worship. And then we don't need to forget about Corinth. Look at the city of Corinth. You want to talk about a city that was messed up 
morally speaking, the city of Corinth was by all standards a vile and immoral city. Paul characterized the people living in Corinth as adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners. Sounds to me like Memphis, Tennessee. For that matter, maybe even Olive Branch or Chicago or New York or Atlanta or Miami or Los Angeles. The point is that cities that do not have God have grave troubles. Yes, Nineveh was a godless city. It was an ungodly city. But there is something else that we need to think about in connection with this. Not only is it characterized as an ungodly city, but it is spoken of as a city with an uncertain future. Turn over, if you would, and look at chapter 3 now. Jonah is instructed a second time to arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that God said, I tell you. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the uncertainty of this city. Let me just pause here and make this observation. When God looks into the hearts and lives of people that make up cities, how does he draw his conclusions? When God looks at the city of Olive Branch or the city of Memphis or Atlanta or Miami or New York or wherever it may be, does God first look at what the Chamber of Commerce has to say about that city? Now, the Chamber of Commerce does a lot of great things, but typically they try to paint a positive picture to prospective businesses, corporations, and residents. They want potential citizens in that city to see the good. God does not look at what the Chamber of Commerce has to say about a city before he decides the spiritual status of that city. When God looked at the city of Nineveh, God saw a wicked city. And so, in chapter 3, Jonah is encouraged to go and to proclaim a message that in 40 days, the city is going to be overthrown. You ever thought about how fast 40 days can pass? This was prospectively a terminal city. What if your physician told you today, you have 40 days to live? 
friend of mine I mentioned not long ago. His father was diagnosed with cancer, terminal cancer. And my friend said his daddy lived almost three weeks to the day before succumbing to that illness. Let me tell you what, if you find out you've got 40 days to live every day, every second of every minute of every hour of every day will be precious to you because it will be over before you know it. 40 days. And God said, I'm going to bring this city down. I will bring it to their knees. I want to ask this question. Does God have the power today to bring cities down? Does he have the power today to bring nations down? You better believe he does. Go back and look at history. Look at some of the great powers. Look at Assyria. Look at Nineveh. Nineveh, fortunately, got their act together. But that only lasted for about 150 years. And then God raised up another prophet by the name of Nahum. And Nahum said, God is coming to judge you. And he did. And so, that's the rest of the story. Now as we look at the profile of the city, and in light of chapter 3, what we want to do now is to note the prescription that is given to the city. Let's talk for a minute about the fate of Nineveh. Did you know that how the Ninevite people responded would ultimately determine their fate? It was all in how they received the prophet. When you look at prophets in the Old Testament, what is your view of them? Were they popular men? By and large, the prophets were despised. Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5 of how they persecuted the prophets of old. And the point was, just as they persecuted them, they will persecute you as one of my disciples. So as we think about the prescription, the remedy for the Ninevite people, let's look again at what is said beginning in verse 4. Jonah began to enter the city and on the first day's walk, he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The first thing that comes to my mind, the uniqueness of the message. God is saying to these people, what you need to do is listen to my word. Now back up and look at verse 2. God had told Jonah to go to that great city and preach to it the message that I tell you. What is it that's going to salvage wicked cities? What is it that's going to be a deterrent to cities that are upside down in ungodliness. You know what's going to save them? God's word. 
Haggai said that he was the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message in Haggai chapter 1, verse 13. The apostle Paul said to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. And so this unique message, and let me just, let me just make this observation very quickly. Isn't it interesting that God placed in many respects the responsibilities on one man, Jonah? What does that say to us today? That God can use us in his service. Here is a city and the fate of that city rests on one man. The power was not in the man. The power was in the message. What is it that's going to save cities today in our country, around the world? Let me tell you what it is. It's called the Word of God. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Hebrew writer said that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You and I, we need to become modern-day Jonas. We need to have the, the fortitude, the courage, and the conviction to stand up and to speak the Word of God. We need more Jonas today. We talk about changing cities all across our nation and changing great cities. The only way to do that is to unsheathe the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and begin preaching and teaching people one-on-one -on -one, and in mass if we have that opportunity. We are in an election year and there is a lot of fervor going on in our country. It's amazing to me the amount of money that is being raised for the presidential campaign. Let me just say that it's absurd. I mean, really. We've got people living in poverty all across this nation. We've got people with all kinds of problems. We're in debt up to our ears, and we're sending millions of dollars to two people to spend on a presidential campaign. Isn't it odd that for a job that pays about $400,000 a year, people will spend multiple millions of dollars to get in that office? You know what it's about? It's about power. It's about power. Let me tell you what, I don't mean this, I don't mean this in a caustic way. The Republicans and Democrats, they don't have the answer to the ills of our nation. They don't have the answer. Do you really think those guys in Washington, do you really think that they can somehow lead us out of the wilderness? and bring us into the promised land, so to speak? Look at their track record. They don't have a clue of what to do. They're upside down. Let me tell you what will change the direction of our country. It's not the platform of the Democrats. It's not the platform of the Republicans. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wish people in the church could realize that. That's what's gonna change our nation. That's what's going to change cities all across our nation. 
We've got people that are adhering to party platforms and they are they're propagating some of the most ungodly filth that I've ever seen. And we're going to put our faith in that? Have we lost our mind? Think about it. Have we lost our mind? It's, it's, it is unbelievable to me. Now, am I against the political process? Absolutely not. Do I believe we should vote? Yes, I do. I think we ought to vote, and I think we ought to do the best we can. My point is simply this. My faith is not in Washington. My faith is in this book that I call the Bible. This book is what has the answers. Not those guys in Washington. They have proven to me time and again. And let me tell you what, if you can get those guys on the phone and let me talk to them, I'll be happy to talk to them. I promise you. You get me an appointment up there in Washington, let me go speak to those guys, I'll be happy to speak to them. I don't have a problem with that. I can assure you they won't like what they hear because here's the problem. We think we know better than God and it makes us look foolish. Paul said professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's what we have become, foolish. So the uniqueness of this message and the urgency of this message. God said in 40 days, Nineveh's gonna be destroyed. What if your best friend had 40 days to live and he or she happened to be outside of Christ? Would there be a sense of urgency? If your husband or wife were not a Christian, or let's say he or she is a Christian, but they're unfaithful. And you know that within 40 days, you will stand at the side of an open grave and bury that loved one. Would there be a sense of urgency? If your son or daughter was living like a prodigal, the kind of person that Jesus talked about in Luke 15, he or she living a life of wastefulness, drunkenness, drugs, sexual promiscuity, gambling. I mean, just living an unrighteous life. And that son or daughter had 40 days to live. Would there be a sense of urgency with you? What would you want to talk about? Did you know the Hebrew writer said, it is appointed unto man once to die, after this cometh the judgment? 40 days and death is coming. What does that signal? It signals the judgment is on the horizon. There was a sense of urgency to this message. God gave them a period of time to get their act together. And God said, if you do not get your act together, here's what I'm going to do. I will bring you down. He meant what he said. And he said exactly what he meant. So, we look at the remedy. 
the remedy was to preach to these people. And in light of that, let's now note the repentance of these people. Look at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and I think really the idea here is that this was the governor of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Let me just pause here. Two things. First, the attitude of the Ninevites, from the least to the greatest, from the man in charge all the way down. How did they respond? Listen to what it says. The people of Nineveh believed God. They had enough sense to know that what this guy's talking about, that being Jonah, that what he was saying was indeed true. What, it, what is it that, what is one of the great challenges that we face in our society today? It's getting people to accept this book as truth. Getting people to understand that, that look, there is a payday coming someday. That we are all going to stand out before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the deeds done in the body according to what we've done, whether good or bad. To understand that what God says in his word is true. And that God wants us to conform to his will. So the attitude of the people. And then the actions of the people. How did they react? Let me tell you how they reacted. They repented. They were willing to make the necessary changes. Listen again to what is said. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? What is repentance? It's a change of heart followed by a change of actions. Now let's go back to the city of Corinth for a minute. You remember Corinth? Corinth, the Apostle Paul spent 18 months in the city of, city of Corinth preaching and teaching the gospel. Luke said in, in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, that many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Well, repentance precedes baptism, doesn't it? Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. So, here are the Corinthians. They have heard the word of God. Paul characterized them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as what? Adulterers, idolaters, fornicators, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. But then he says in verse 11, and such were 
some of you. Let me ask this question. Was that past, present, or future tense? Past tense. Such were some of you. What did they do? They repented. In other words, they changed their behavior. If a man was living in sin, he gave it up. As Brother Camp used to say, when we obey the gospel, we get out of the sinning business. We die to the love and the practice of sin. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, to whom the world was crucified unto me and I unto the world. That's what it means to become a child of God. We die to the love and the practice of sin. Now there's a third thing. Note if you would, the relenting by God. Now in verse 9, the people said, who can tell if God will turn away and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Verse 10, then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring people or rather bring upon them and he did not do it. So what happened? They were spared. Here's what it says to me. God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. There was a great truth taught by the prophet Ezekiel in the long ago. God said through the prophet Ezekiel that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I think sometimes people have the idea that God delights in condemning people. That is so far removed from the truth. God is interested in the salvation of people. He's interested in souls. The whole thrust of the redemptive plan is to save. God wants to see people saved. Was God concerned in the long ago about people outside a covenant relationship with him? Namely, those outside of Israel. The answer, unequivocally, yes. He was concerned about the Ninevites. In closing, is God concerned today about people? Yes, he is. You see, people make up families. Families make up cities. Cities make up states, and states make up nations, don't they? If we're going to change a city, how do we do that? One person at a time. If we're going to change a state, how do we do that? One person at a time. The same is true for a nation. So, how do you change a great city? One word. Jesus. Jesus is the answer. What, what our nation needs, what our city needs, and our state, is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Do you remember what he said in John chapter 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth, the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the answer. I hope and pray that our nation, that our cities will realize that the Lord has the answer. It might be the case that you're here tonight and maybe your life is not what it ought to be. The beauty of what scripture says is you can change. 
The Bible is filled with people whose lives were changed by Almighty God. Look at the life of Paul. Look at the lives of those who lived in Corinth. Look at the life of Peter. Those are just some examples. I don't know where you are in your life, but I know this. God can take you and use you. He can use you in ways that you can't even fathom if you'll allow him to do that. But you've got to be in his family before he can use you for good. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we want to urge you to come to Christ. We want to encourage you to come to Christ who has the ability to save you from sin. The Bible says that we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7. Here's how you contact the blood of Christ. Believe in him, repent of your sins, confess his name, and then be immersed in a watery grave of baptism. That's what Paul did. That's what Luke recorded, Acts 22.16. If you do that, the Bible says God will add you to the church. And if you live faithfully, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight, you're not faithful, why not come home? as we stand and sing.